0: Welcome to another edition of The Legal Geeks. Today we are going to discuss Han Shot First. We're talking about Star Wars, of course, one of the original movies and original series that brought Josh and I together. Um, a mutual love for at least the first three movies in the series. I refuse to discuss too much the last three in the series. But today we're going to discuss. A, uh oh. <laughs> Go ahead, Josh. Let, let's qualify that.
1: By the first three, yes. we mean the original the that original came out in 1977. Three.
0: Yeah. Okay. Not. We are not referring to the prequels as a masterpiece. That's Let's right. To make that abundantly clear. <laughs> See, I still. I'm like. I'm going to call them the first three. They're just. Yes. They're secondary. I don't even like to think about them. But fair point. For our younger viewers, we do need to probably qualify that. So good point, <laughs> Josh. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so we're going to discuss today an iconic scene from the first movie that actually, again, from the original Star Wars that sets up, obviously, a lot of the events that happen at the end of the second movie and then, of course, in Return of the Jedi, the third uh, movie. And that is the cantina scene with Han in um, Star Wars. So Josh, tell us a little bit first about what happened originally and what George Lucas did when he went back and started tinkering with his masterpieces. So in 1977...
1: The original Star Wars comes out, and it changes the world. It's probably the second summer blockbuster, mm-hmm. first being Jaws in 75, 1977. I, we then have Star Wars come out, and it's jaw-dropping awesome. Yeah. Because it was very tough for Hollywood to compete with the space program, because the space program was you know, real, <laughs> and we needed to have, you know, you know, sci-fi movies needed to be able to match that. Mm-hmm. And with Star Wars, it, it exceeded it. And so people were just lined up around the corners and jaws dropped. And in the scene when we're introduced to Han Solo, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker book a charter flight from Tatooine to Alderaan to deliver all R2-D2 with the plans to the Death Star. And as you know, Obi-Wan and Luke go their way, Chewie goes to get the Millennium Falcon ready, and Han is leaving. But he's stopped by Guido, who works for Jabba. The H- he's a bounty hunter, and he's green, got a snout thing, and it's also one of those fun issues of he's not speaking English, and Han's not speaking his language, <laughs> but both understand each other, and so that, that's 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 always interesting to to watch how sci-fi can pull that off with a straight face, and no one and everyone thinks it's normal because we have subtitles. <laughs> so Han is. You know, Guido has his gun out, forces Han to sit in the corner of a booth, and a, an exchange takes place where Guido wants to collect the money that Han owes Jabba the hut As the dialogue goes back and forth, there's the not-so-subtle threat against Han's life. And that if he can't pay, you know, Jabba would want Han Solo's spaceship, the Millennium Falcon. Still one of the coolest ever. Yes. And as is that exchange is taking place and the threat is very obvious that Guido is going to shoot Han. Uh, there's uh, there's a statement by Guido that, you know, uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, to which Han Solo replies, yes, I bet you have. And at that, Han shoots Guido from under the table. Yeah. Guido never pulls the trigger. And everyone in 1977 went like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the way we do things. <laughs>
0: What's totally wrong with you, of
1: course? I mean, <laughs> 1997 comes along, and we have the movies re-released. And at the re-release, which has enhanced special effects and things flying around the background and creatures walking around as, as they're going through Mos Eisley and Empire and all the other ones, this added stuff to make it look more futuristic, all the same things happen except at point-blank range, Widow fires first and wildly misses Han from four feet across the table. <laughs> not a very good bounty hunter. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just horrible. He should have been a nerve herder. <laughs> and, and like, literally everyone, like, I mean, when I saw that, there were gasps in the theater because it was like that that, that was not supposed to happen that way. And so that, that bothered a lot of people mm-hmm. and, and still does. So that's... What happened in the magic of movie making? Why do you think George made that change? Well, you, I, let's put things into historical context and and the effect and change on society. In 1977, we're, we're in a cold war with the Soviet Union. It, it's scary. You know, the threat and fear of nuclear war is real. So you you know, with with the things taking place in the late 70s, and you know the arms race that's going on and real fear, you know, it's very easy to, you know, to to portray, like, kind of the tough guy, and that, you know, he would shoot first in that situation. Well, we win the Cold War, and, you know, in 1997, it was, like, the first decade of the world being at peace, so to say. Now, granted, some historians disagree with that, and I happen to, too, as well. We don't have any giant, major wars taking place, or things there are other things taking place across the world that that require military action. Uh, But, you know, we're relatively safe in 1997. And it probably bothered George Lucas in the 20 years that followed that he had the character who shot first. And so maybe he was trying to fix that. Maybe it really did bother him, and, and he wanted to change that. And putting it into, you know, 1977 to 1997... Um, and the effect that, that happened over that 20 years,
0: maybe that explains his his thought process. See, now I think that it was more that in Star Wars originally, Han in the first movie was morally ambiguous, I mean, until the very end where he had the revelation and came back, of course, with the awesome moment to help Luke Skywalker back him up so that he could blow up the Death Star. Spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Some haven't. <laughs> But in the first movie, he was morally ambiguous and then obviously in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, he becomes much more clearly a good guy. And so I think what happens sometimes is, you know, as a character, as you continue telling the story and the character changes, which characters should change because we all do make changes but it can be hard then maybe to go back and still be comfortable with, you know what, you know, my Han now post return of the Jedi is a very good guy. And so it's hard to go back and say, you know what, he was morally ambiguous and he was the type in the first episode to, you know, shoot first and ask questions second. Um, and so that's why I wonder if it was just George personally, the character changed so much in his mind through those first or through the three movies that he had a hard time then going back and saying, yes, I'm still okay with how morally ambiguous Han was. Um, in the first movie period, and this may have been one of the scenes that he thought was morally ambiguous. Although you're going to tell us now, if legally, if you think Han ha- was justified in shooting first, so what do you think uh, as far as the law on this point? Well, first, with character development, people mm-hmm. can be dynamic and do a
1: big change. Yes. And so, and maybe that so that could have watered down the significance of Han's change. No, yeah, good point. And uh, which is again, it's like okay. You know, being around Luke, Leia, and everything influenced him and brought about a big life change in him. Well, let's talk about the legal issues. Now, granted, I haven't studied the law under the empire other than the <laughs> doctrine of fear. You know, and that was Governor Turkin with the idea of we'll have a space station if we can blow up somebody's planet. That's an awesome way to ensure dominance and control because we rule through fear. Uh, if you're a really mean big brother, that could work. Um, it, it can work in foreign policy as well. Uh, but it's, it's very, let's see if they have anything similar to self-defense. Yeah. Now, under common law, deadly force is only justified in self-protection if the defendant reasonably believed that it was necessary to use deadly force to prevent imminent and awful use of uh, deadly force by the aggressor. Comparing that to the Model Penal Code, we have uh, the defendant has to believe that force is immediately necessary to protect himself from death, serious bodily injury, forcible rape, or kidnapping. Under both scenarios, we have Han cornered, mm-hmm. a gun's drawn on him, so there's a threat of death because he could be shot at point-blank range, serious bodily injury. I'm sure a blaster would hurt um, <laughs> if) At point blank range, he could take off an arm or give you a good way to lose an eye, and probably and kidnapping. Yes. I'm like those are the three out of the four on the t- uh, table because he could have been taken to Jabba um, to to pay up, or if he didn't have the money, to serious bodily injury. It's probably kidnapping followed by serious bodily injury or death. So all of those seem on the table as Han is cornered by Guido over a table. We have a retreat rule. In our common law, if a person could safely retreat and therefore avoid killing the aggressor, deadly force is unnecessary. Under the model penal code, one may not use deadly force against an aggressor if you know you can uh, be, you know, uh, avoid using it by completely um, you know, or complete safety by retreating. Now you don't need to retreat if you're in your home
0: or place of work.
1: Since we're at the Katina, and we're, that's that's not in that's not
0: his place of work. That's he did book business there. there. You could the, argue that he does a lot of his business did, there.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting to get into case law to see what, how they define <laughs> place of yes. work. Uh, that that'd be very interesting. But so far, it doesn't seem retreat, you know, needed to happen because he's cornered. He's he's over a table. He's in the.
0: Of a bar,
1: you can't really get out. Bar, from that. Yes. Close, it's,
0: actually. It's a bad place.
1: So, and then we get into reasonable belief, and that starts looking at, and this is under the Model Penal Code, and we look at the physical movements of the potential assailant. Now, again, a gun's That's drawn, right, gun. That's a big physical movement. Time. Yeah, it's pointed at him. Uh, any relevant knowledge the defendant has about that person? It's fairly obvious Guido wants to cause harm to Han based upon the dialogue, physical attributes of the persons involved. Not sure how strong Guido was. Can have freaky strength. Yeah, you, you, you don't know. I mean, it's just <laughs> you, you don't know. Uh, but a, a gun's drawn, and prior experience. Well. We know that when you're dealing with bounty hunters and Jabba the Hutt, that you know bad things can flow from all the all of that. So it seems to be that there's a reasonable belief that harm could come. So Han shooting first under the table would be justified. Yeah. Han shooting Han shooting second as well. And you know th- this has obviously impacted other forms of pop culture, with probably the most comparable comparable characters, one that you know and love with, and that would be Josh Whedon's Malcolm (laughs) Reynolds. From Firefly and Serenity, and in the movie Serenity, I think Malcolm shoots at least two, maybe three, no, definitely three unarmed men. And, you know, and it's just like, okay, so that's, you know, seems to be a little morally ambiguous right there. Uh, First episode of Firefly, he shoots, you know, an agent in the head. I know it Point blank range, walking into the ship. So uh, you can definitely see Han Solo's impact on you know further science fiction characters that have come out, and with having that kind of scruffy, morally ambiguous, cool bad boy hero. Yeah, it's just it's it's very (laughs) and and dudes and dudes want to be it, and it's and it's also the. Let's not forget the Harrison Ford factor, you know, uh, the man who was in, you know, six of the most successful movies ever with, with you know, franchises mm-hmm. from Indiana Jones to Star Wars. It's just like, I'm going to go define cool. I know. And, and Han and Solo it, is the coolest yeah, of all. It's, it's, he's awesome. And again, you got to look at Harrison Ford as one cool dude. That's right. So
0: again, it's, it's,
1: it's part, part of the story here.
0: That's Right. Well, see, now that we've decided that Han is justified and that he could have shot first and still be a good guy, even if George is still uncomfortable with that, we will beg George Lucas. Hopefully he's listening to this right now. And we'll beg him, George, please change it back for the 50th anniversary digital edition. Get rid of that. And if I can make a personal request, I'd like to suggest some tweaks for the end of Return of the Jedi. I don't like how the celebration got changed. (laughs) I want to get rid of all the partying. The fireworks and my biggest pet peeve of all the changes is putting Hayden Christensen in at the end when Luke goes out to celebrate with all of his dead buddies and family members.
1: Yeah, taking out Sebastian Lewis Shaw uh, was just was just horrible. Oh, it's like a knife to the heart.
0: That,
1: that, that implied that Anakin Skywalker didn't age <laughs> while he was
0: Darth Vader. Plus it was putting you Hayden know, Christensen in yet another Star Wars movie, which is just wrong. <laughs>
1: It's offensive. It it (laughs) truly is, you know, know, intentional infliction of emotional distress. (laughs) It's really... We'll see. You can hear a thousand souls scream out in terror followed by nothing because... uh, it was truly a truly a traumatic scene for everyone involved with that re-release. <sighs> yes, it was. So
0: hopefully George is listening to this, and now that he understands that Han was legally justified in shooting first, he will make that change <laughs> and our other changes for Return of the Jedi. When we buy yet another version of Star Wars in a couple of years. So, well, thank you, Josh, for explaining why Han is um, awesome and we don't need to feel bad about loving him at all. And there's no moral ambiguity (laughs) after all. So, it really didn't slow down my love of Han, but it does help. So, thank you very much. And thanks, everybody, for joining us today for our first, but probably not our last, Star Wars discussion.
1: Very good. Thank you, everyone.